Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. I'll get your attention, please. Welcome to SACPUT for today, the 6th of December. I'm Mary Shillington. I'll be your moderator today. As usual, those of you who are familiar with uh, SACPA know, know the routine. We have to uh, uh, ask you for some things. First off, turn yourselves off, please. I just finished doing mine. Um, we, uh, uh, as you know, the, the SACPA will, will have the 30 minutes with our speaker. You'll have 30 minutes to eat your lunch and work out questions, and then you'll have 30 minutes to uh, uh, offer questions. And uh, we're anticipating an interesting talk today. Uh, reminder that, again, $11 in your basket and somebody to count. And I um, want to thank uh, um, our partners, the U of L and the Country Kitchen Catering and Shaw TV, who are broadcasting, and we'll show that on Sundays at 4.30. Live, broad, uh, live radio, the CKXU 88.3 FM, and Leftbridge Herald. Dave's here, uh, as often and any other media that are here. So thank you for making SACPA an uh, important piece. Uh, remember, we're a volunteer organization, and Lisa's always ready to take your membership, either your renewal or your uh, new membership, so give her the money, and she'll gladly take it. <laughs> um, and so then I think I've covered everything, and we can move on to what's important, and that is hearing about Trudy Govier, and she says... There's two ways of saying her name, but I had one in my head, and that's how I've said it. So uh, Trudy is a professor of philosophy at the University of Lethbridge, and she's had sounds like she's had an interesting life. She's an author as well, uh, written uh, a textbook that is in use and 10 other works. And she's also helped to organize public, public lecture series and philosophy cafes and worked with Amnesty International. So her topic, the challenges of political reconciliation, and she's going to talk about various countries and what has happened there and uh, in South, uh, South Africa, Canada, Northern Ireland, and Sierra Leone. And so I'm really interested in hearing what Trudy has to say. So please welcome her. Thank you very much for the uh, nice introduction and for inviting me here. Um, I'm going to retire um, very soon, so perhaps this talk is sort of a swan song in Lethbridge, but uh, not quite because I'm conducting a review session for some of my students this afternoon, so I guess they really get the real swan song. Um, anyway, on uh, considering matters, I uh, decided that I should adapt my topic somewhat so as to make it not hopelessly all over the map. And I am going to talk about issues of political reconciliation, but mainly as focused on the specific topic of truth commissions. So first of all, I'll say some things about truth commissions in general, and after that I'll focus some comments on our Canadian Truth Commission. Um, okay, so let's just start at the beginning. Um, what is a truth commission? Um, a truth commission is a uh, commission 
or uh, sort of inquiry established to discuss and explore the nature of past wrongdoing in a society, um, to document truth about um, crimes and deaths and key events for victims and for the society to know and understand the causes of these things. So these truth commissions are typically set up to investigate the past, um, the idea being that um, victims, perpetrators, um, surviving uh, relatives and so on will gain an understanding of what has happened. They are typically fact-finding, non-judicial, temporary um, institutions. So a truth commission isn't established with the idea that it will go on for years and years and years. They usually have a mandate specifying some period of time, like three years, five years, whatever, in which to hold hearings and um, explore documents, uh, do relevant research, uh, write a report, establish an archive, or whatever is appropriate. Um, so typically a truth commission would have a number of appointed commissioners who are persons selected for their general uh, credibility and stature in the community and the sense that these people are fair and unbiased and credible. I think the most famous truth commission head probably in human history is Archbishop Desmond Tutu of South Africa. Not all countries are so fortunate as to have a person of his stature um, in their truth commission. Um, their, the truth commissions hire staff to assist with hearings, with ar arranging um, research meetings, broadcasting, and so on. So then they collect evidence about um, past events and institutions using a number of sources, testimony, um, artifacts when appropriate, documents and records, um, academic works. I know I had a colleague who worked with the South African Truth Commission and I was quite surprised and as an academic rather delighted to find that these people actually were reading academic works on subjects like apology and revenge and so on as part of their background to the work of the commission. Um, so academics and other experts are typically consulted. Now these approaches can vary from society to society and one thing that's really interesting about the Truth Commission approach is that because the South African Commission was so widely publicized so and so well known, the approach um, acquired a lot of interest after that time. And there's a center in New York called the International Center for Transitional Justice that studies the, the modus operandi of these commissions in various different countries, studies local conditions, and, you know, recommends... Um, adaptations and modifications that suit a local context. They will send um, advisors and help organize certain kinds of events. Um, we in Canada had a man called Eduardo Gonzalez, who I believe had worked with the Peru Truth Commission, and he was quite involved in Canadian events as well. They issue publications and, and reports. So to me, this was an interesting example of 
in ongoing events and problems, and study and adaptation and communication of these results all going on in a fairly compressed um, time frame so that you had um, research and study and practice all together and people really trying to build on what had worked or what was seen to have worked previously and um, in order to advise the next uh, candidate. Now, it would be actually great if these commissions could simply go out of business because uh, what would put them out of business would be if people stopped having things like civil wars and... Uh, terrible massacres and totalitarian regimes and uh, the like. Um, regrettably, I don't predict the cessation of all se such activities anytime soon. So I think that these institutions will continue to be um, developed and promoted. Now, when um, I, wa I once had the great privilege of hearing Desmond Tutu discuss the South African Commission, and I remember... Uh, he sort of talked about it as an alternative to other things which would have been a lot worse. And, you know, one thing that in his view would have been worse and was also impossible would be to take all the persons who had committed murders, tortures, abductions, serious wrongdoing during the apartheid era, take all those guys or people, some of them were women, and put them on a criminal trial, and if they were convicted of having done some of these things, put them in jail. Well, that's um, often just not possible because there simply are too many such people. And it's often not even desirable because you have a very divided society. Um, so anyway, that's one alternative that wouldn't work. And another alternative that you might think of is, well, people um, don't do anything at all right, to um, retrieve the past, to reckon with it, deal with it, discuss it. And as Archbishop Tutu explained in his talk, um, the Truth Commission of South Africa was seen as a third alternative more desirable than either of these other things. And I think it's often, um, often these commissions are instituted for those sorts of reasons. Um, there are, however, there is now a wider range of alternatives, and I think also people are starting to choose truth commissions uh, for their own sake, as opposed to just, you know, they're, they're distinct from other stuff that doesn't work. So some of the other alternatives, you could try to have a purge, um, some sort of lustration, where you could decide you, you had a discredited regime, for instance, a, a communist regime that was quite oppressive, and you would disqualify people who had participated from election to public office and so on. That kind of thing was quite common in East and Central Europe. Um, you could, um, yeah, as I say, do nothing, or you could have more limited penal processes. You can have um, court processes that are partially international and partial, partially national and so on. But the truth commission technique is uh, a popular thing and common. And I remember when I first became interested in this, reading a classic book on it, and the author said, 
and this was in the late 90s, said, well, I mean, there have been 20 truth commissions already. And her point being the South African one was by no means the first, and that's certainly true. Um, Now when I read about this, people say, well, there have been at least 40 of these truth commissions. So it's a common strategy, and as um, I'm sure you all know, um, we have a Truth and Reconciliation Commission in Canada, and I'll try to say something about that in a few minutes. So what are the typical goals of these truth commissions? Well, as the name would imply, a major goal is to find out the truth, to find out information about what happened, what caused these things that happened, um, what are the conditions under which they happened, um, how could we uh, understand them, and to apply that knowledge to um, more future-oriented questions such as how could we prevent such things from happening again. Um, Another goal of these commissions is the healing of survivors and victims. Um, And a a very important notion is that when people have gone through uh, tragic events, it is often helpful for them to be able to tell their stories to a sympathetic audience who will empathize with them, perhaps to get counseling or some other um, strategy that will help them better deal with what they've gone through. Um, a, A goal of truth commissions, which I personally would emphasize because I think it's really important and unlike some others it's quite realistically achievable is the goal of acknowledgement and this simply means when you find out these various things about what happened and the causes and conditions of their happening that this is articulated in a report and hopefully the knowledge and understanding gained would be disseminated within the society and would enter into mainstream sources as standard historical accounts of the society and in particular textbooks. And I'm sure that many of you have heard uh, countries such as China and Japan that have you know huge disputes and demonstrations, sometimes even violent ones, over issues about the content of textbooks, how history is told and how uh, past uh, wrongs and tragedies figure in that history and how the denigration or suppression of various groups enters into that history is a key matter for any society. So truth commissions by doing this research, holding these hearings, hearing the testimony and so on, have a lot to contribute to uh, the public acknowledgement of things that have happened. Um, Some truth commissions, um, this does not apply to the Canadian one, uh, some truth commissions have been involved in the offering of amnesty to certain perpetrators, amnesty meaning that these people are deemed to be immune from criminal or civil prosecution for the acts that they have committed. That's one of the most legally and ethically and politically controversial aspects of truth commissions. It was a feature of the South African Truth Commission, uh, but people who um, work on that uh, subject 
um, are careful to remind us this was not a blanket amnesty in South Africa. It didn't mean that, you know, when the commission was set up, they said, okay, everybody who committed an apartheid-related crime has an automatic amnesty. No, the amnesty was individualized and selective, so to be eligible for amnesty, you had to provide information about what you had done, and you had to appear and request the amnesty, and what you had done had to be done for political reasons. So um, if you, during an apartheid struggle, um, just went and burned down somebody's house because you were mad at them, that wouldn't um, be an amnesty-eligible crime because it wouldn't be a political crime. It would be a personal act. Um, anyway, amnesty is, is a feature of many of these con commissions, though not our Canadian one. They also have a goal of contributing to justice, and this is a controversial matter as well um, because of different understandings of justice. Some people think, well, justice must mean courts of law. It must mean that people who have committed some misdeed uh, appear in court, they get a criminal trial, and if convicted, they get an appropriate sentence by the court. Prison, a fine, or community service, or some combination of those. Um, so that's um, an understanding of justice in a legal sense. Most theorizing about truth commissions emphasizes that there's a broader sense of justice that where you know, victims need to be considered, psychological conditions need to be considered, um, reparations need to be considered, the, the uh, capacity of the society for coexistence in the future needs to be considered and so on. So the term restorative justice is often used in this context and I regret to say it's not often really well defined. Sometimes it seems to me to mean, well, it's justice but don't expect the standard thing in court. So it, it kind of gets a catch-all negative definition. Um, okay, let me just check my watch here. I think I'd better speed up just a little. Um, okay, so the processes, um, and I'll try to make this description appropriate to the Canadian case as well. The processes are to have public events where victims and survivors come forward and tell their stories, to do research, to make, make issue reports, and the reports making uh, recommendations. Often these, these things are carried out with international assistance, and that does apply in the Canadian case. Now, I mentioned that at least 40 countries have had truth commissions, so I'll just name a few of them. Um, South Africa, Sierra Leone, Peru, East Timor, Canada. Um, South Africa, I'm sure, has been the most influential, impeccable leadership, extremely well-funded. They innovated by having public events. Um, so things were broadcast. The, the public was invited to hearings. There, there were things were in, the, in TV, radio, and so on. And um, prior to this, truth commissions in Latin America had been more... Um, more uh, closed and uh, more sort of listing the crimes and not so much an emphasis on publicity or on healing. 
Um, okay, what are some of the main problems associated with truth commissions in general, just before we come to the Canadian case? Well, there's the fact that amnesty is often exceedingly controversial. Um, there's, there are confusions over criminal process and restorative justice. Some people still hold the idea that a truth commission should be like a court, and when they find out it isn't, they become disappointed. Uh, a related problem is that one might expect too much too soon. If you have a society in which there's been a serious civil war or a military dictatorship or communism of an oppressive nature over a long period of time, or if you've had um, serious problems over indigenous populations lasting for centuries, you cannot realistically expect that some body will be able to implement processes and heal or reconcile everybody um, in a matter of a few years. And I think there's a danger of expecting too much. Um, another uh, big danger in some places is that the claim is made that these processes will be victim-friendly and they will assist victims, and often there is simply no capacity in the society to do that in economic terms. That applies to Sierra Leone. It applies to Peru. It applies in a somewhat different way to South Africa, where there have been a lot of complex issues about victim compensation and um, reparations. Um, okay, so uh, resources can be an issue. In that way, um, South Africa was comparatively privileged because South Africa, when you consider the country as a whole and not different segments of it, has been a fairly wealthy country and their Truth Commission was quite well funded. Um, Okay, now I want to just say um, something about the Canadian TRC, and disappointingly, I've only, I think I've only got seven minutes, but hopefully a lot of you will ask questions about this. Um, so we have a, a TRC with three commissioners, uh, Judge Murray Sinclair, um, Wilton Littlechief, and Marie Wilson, all very able people. Um, these people replaced three original commissioners who, who had uh, some administrative issues and all resigned. So our commission was delayed a year in its startup. Um, our commission is charged with holding seven national events, holding a number of community events at which there will be victim and survivor testimony and um, speeches and uh, maybe circle ceremonies, other culturally appropriate um, ceremonies contributing to both to healing and to testimony. Um, th this commission is also charged with doing research uh, specifically on the topic of residential schools and problems stemming from them and establishing a research center. Um, so those are its its main uh, tasks. They will this commission will also, as as the others do, be charged with making recommendations um, and with, of, of course, acknowledgement. Um, all right. So what else can we say? It is described as restorative justice, and there is a departure from standard in standard theories of restorative justice. The notion is. The victim and the perpetrator 
encounter each other. They share their perceptions, their knowledge. It may be highly emotional occasion. They, they, they gain understanding and empathy for each other. And in some way, out of this contact, um, emerge, um, ideally, uh, an apology and a sense of remorse on the part of the offender and um, some sort of acceptance or possibly even forgiveness on the part of the victim. Now, notice the feature of encounter. I'm emphasizing that because it's, it's core in restorative justice when you're thinking of it in more individualistic terms. It, this is missing in the Canadian TRC because the Canadian TRC is not explicitly addressed to the issue of perpetrators coming forward and confessing or acknowledging what they did. For one thing, many persons who were or are believed to have been perpetrators are no longer alive. Um, so these proceedings are for victims and survivors. And many victims are no longer alive because uh, these schools go back a long time in our history. So the na this is a context, the Canadian context, is one in which the notion of restorative justice is used quite broadly. It's, it's, it's accurate in implying that healing is a goal, it's accurate in implying understanding is a goal, and it's accurate in implying that this is not a legal process. Okay, let me very quickly um, mention some of the criticisms of the Canadian TRC. And I'm not mentioning all these criticisms to say that I personally agree with them. I'm mentioning them for the sake of giving information and also maybe they'll, they'll lead to some good discussion during our Christmas, our Christmas period. <laughs> Boy, I really am looking ahead here. Man, too much preoccupation with mailing gifts to the UK. It cost, cost us a fortune. This happened yesterday. All right, so for our question period, here are some of these uh, criticisms that have been put forward. Some people have been very frustrated that you cannot name names when testifying at these events, right? So if person XYZ is the person who beat you up or who sexually abused you or who insulted your language or whatever, you can't say who XYZ was. It's just a person did such and such to you. There's no... Um, idea in these proceedings that prosecution or jail terms will come out of um, witness testimony. Um, another criticism is it said there are not enough healing facilities associated with these um, proceedings. Um, some Aboriginal people feel very frustrated that the churches and the government were responsible for this ab the abuse and, abuse and yet they're involved in this aftermath process. Um, okay, then there, there, are, there are senses that this undermines criminal justice. Now, personally, I think that some of these, confu these um, criticisms presuppose a degree of confusion and expectation that the truth commission process should be like a criminal court. Um, someone is, the reason you can't name names, if you name it, you know, XYZ did such and such to you, that XYZ isn't there. 
He doesn't have a lawyer there. Your stuff could be publicized. X, Y, Z can be labeled and castigated as having done this thing with no chance to defend himself or herself. And even if X, Y, Z is dead, his or her relatives might not be. There were people who were staff in these schools who worked hard and conscientiously to benefit Aboriginal students. That is acknowledged. And those people, um, well, like, like any person, um, they do have the legal right to defend themselves if charged. So given that the process is not a criminal process, that's why names can't be named. That's why trials and prosecutions don't emerge from this. And it is um, somewhat of a misunderstanding to expect those. Okay, another thing that's sometimes said is a truth commission offers only cheap reconciliation. So what do people mean by cheap reconciliation? They mean um, the perpetrator wants, or the perpetrator group, wants to get something from the victim, namely forgiveness or some kind of acceptance. And the perpetrator does not wish to give back to the victim. So there's a the famous bicycle parable illustrating this problem. This was used in South Africa because people accused Archbishop Tutu of promulgating cheap reconciliation. Because Tutu really promoted forgiveness, which he understood as Christian forgiveness. And that was a major ethos. And the a criticism was in the following par- parable. You know, Fred takes Joe's bicycle. So Fred goes off the bicycle, blah, blah, so he keeps the bicycle for several years. And um, eventually Fred decides, well, he better return the bicycle. He, he better, you know, go to Joe, and he better get something from Joe, and he better ask Joe for forgiveness. So Fred goes to Joe and says, no, you know, will you forgive me? You know, I'm sorry I took your bicycle. I'm sorry I haven't had your bicycle. I mean, will you forgive me? And uh, Joe says, well, what about my bicycle? The point being, you're, the forgiveness is going to be cheap, and it's unreasonable to expect it if you don't get back what you took away. Now, this is, becomes a somewhat questionable analogy if you try to apply it in a case where indigenous persons have lost their land. Since giving a bicycle back would, in principle, be simple although it wouldn't compensate for the several years when you didn't have use of it, um, giving the land back is not, in my view, a practical possibility, either in South Africa or in a society like Canada, which would be called in this literature a settler society. Um, So it's thought by some people that the notion of reconciliation under a commission like ours it would be cheap reconciliation because the, the, the deprivation and marginalization of people is so fundamental that residential schools are an aspect of a broader thing, and the broader thing you can't really address. So that's a, a thought-provoking um, possibility um, for us to consider. Um, Alrighty, what have we got here? Finished? Okay, I have a couple more comments, but I'll fit them in when I'm responding to your questions. Thank you.